0: Conversations on Dance is proud to have Yumiko as a continued partner in 2021. Yumiko is a company inspired by beauty and standards. As a leader in the dancewear industry, they take great pride in their impact as a socially and environmentally conscious brand and today we have big news. In honor of springtime's arrival, Yumiko is offering a special in-store discount to our New York City listeners. Show that you are subscribed to Conversations on Dance at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your in-store purchase. For store hours, visit yumiko.com and be sure to follow along on Instagram at Yumiko to participate in their weekly giveaways and to stay updated on all things 2021. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro.
1: And I'm Michael Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance.
0: Listener favorite and former chief dance critic at the New York Times, Alistair Macaulay, returns to the podcast this week. We realize that we have never asked Alistair his origin story in dance, so he gives us some background on how the love affair began. We take a few detours to discuss the late Jacques Dumbois, Dances at a Gathering, Anthony Tudor, and Stories of balancing Ballerinas. Then, Alistair talks with us about the virtual return of City Center's Studio 5 series that he hosts. This year, with Studio 5 dancing across continents, City Center brings us an intimate look at rare pairings of exceptional dance artists from around the world. To watch the films already available and to be notified when new content goes live, subscribe to City Center's YouTube channel or click the link in the description of this episode. Read Alistair's recent essays on dance on his website, alistairmccauley.com.
1: Alistair, we're so happy to have you back for, what, I don't know, our, our dozenth episode together. <laughs> um, but we have a lot to get through with you. And actually, you brought this to our attention. I love this because we we ask every single person on the podcast where they got their start in dance. But because we tend to be, when, when you come on, we get so hyper-focused on one little thing. I know, niche moment of dance that we've neglected to ask you our most popular question. Actually, not not most popular among listeners.
2: Just an hour ago, I was listening to your wonderful Graham dance interview and I suddenly thought, they've never asked me how I (laughs) began.
1: Yeah, so so go ahead and tell us what, what first sparked your interest in dance.
2: Well, it wasn't really in childhood. That was the curious thing. So many of your people, you know, began at the age of two or five or whenever. Right. Uh, and I was a very uncoordinated child and I was a very sickly child with very bad asthma. So I would listen to music and I would read books. And I think I had a theatrical mind, but I didn't really find myself interested in theatrical dancing. Uh, I wanted to go to the opera a lot. And I started to go, I suppose, when I was 17, when I was still at school. And then when I was 18, I managed to get to a bit to the ballet, and I thought it was all right. <laughs> it <changed my> life. <laughs> um, one of them was Romeo, and I think if you're a young romantic person, everybody should see Romeo, and I was carried away by Romeo, so I thought, oh, well, if it was all like this, it would be all right. Mm-hmm. And then when I was 19, I thought, well, Rudolf and Rea may not dance much longer, and I think I should start seeing some of the famous ballets like Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty. So I could have chosen Sibley and Dowell. Uh, but I remember thinking, no, I'll go to see Mel Park and Rudolf Nureyev. And I saw them in quick succession in La Female Gardee, Sleeping Beauty. And it was Monica Mason in Swan Lake with Rudolf Nureyev. So it's Nureyev and three ballads in succession. And I think by the end of that, it was starting to get under my skin a bit. I went with my great friend Claire, who's still a close friend of mine, to my our uh, first Swan Lake. And Monica Mason did the most phenomenal things with her arms and her act to exit, with ripples going along the length of the arms such as no human being can do. Mm-hmm. I think it was based on what Maya Plisetsky had famously done in uh, The Dying Swan, because I now know Monica and I've asked her about it a bit. And the next day, Claire and I both met. We were both I was an undergrad at Cambridge. She was in her first job there. And we both looked at each other and said, did you try to do what she did with her arms in the mirror after? <laughs> and we did. <laughs> And when it gets into your body, even if you're an uncoordinated 19-year-old, you know some bug is getting to you. (laughs) And then I went to a bit more when I was 20, uh, quite often with Nureyev, because he was just such a great star and I wasn't sure how much longer he would last. And he was the greatest star I ever saw, I have to say. Uh, Even if you were irritated by him some ways, when he wanted you to look at him, Mel Park, Monica Mason could be dancing on the other side of the stage and you had to look at Nureyev if you wanted. Mm -hmm. That was the most extraordinary thing. But then I saw him, I think, on one Friday do... Uh, Manon with Merle Park one Saturday doing Swan Lake with Merle Park we're talking January 1976 and then on the Monday Romeo and Juliet with Margot Fontaine and she was 56 Mm -hmm. and he was about 39 maybe 38 Mm -hmm. Um, and she came on and I had now seen Romeo a couple of times with Merle Park Uh, and I remember thinking well there's no way she's 14 which is what Juliet is meant to be Mm -hmm. and then I said well there's no way I can not believe she's 14 she's putting so much energy so much radiance into being this it was again stardom to equal nereus uh incandescent but the other thing was it kind of came and went during the performance so i think there were little moments in the ballroom scene where i thought it actually looks as if she's in pain and mm-hmm. your attention dipped for a little bit right um i mean now i know the choreography better i remember thinking how on earth at that point did she do double pirouettes but you know she had bad feet at that point um But then in the balcony scene, she dusted things that were the most powerful thing I have ever seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, In particular, and I can't quite believe this happened because nobody remembers it the way I do. (laughs) Everybody remembers it the first half. That is, there's a bit in the Romeo Paredes, Macmillan's Romeo when he gets done onto his knees and grabs the hem of her robe as she passes him. Normally it's very quick, mm-hmm. uh, but touching. Nurev really used to take his time with Fontaine as if it was the Holy Grail, taking the hem of her dress and kissing it. But what I remember with Fontaine is in profile to the audience, she just looked down as if this was the most magical thing. And then she swept her arms up as if she was looking through them to the sky, and then brought the arms down over her face, over her body in a wave. And you could hear the whole amphitheatre, the upper level of Covent Garden, just going, oh, <sighs> like that. And, and I later realised I only ever heard that gasp at Fontaine performances. You later, a year later, I saw her do Marguerite and Armand mm-hmm. with Nerev. And the, the effect of emotion she could create was phenomenal. Wow. So after that, I must say, I started to become a groupie. Not, There wasn't much of Margot Fontaine yet left to see, but I just had to go and see more dancing. Mm-hmm. I had to go and buy books on Fontaine and the Royal Ballet. Um, I wasn't, I think I was already interested in all kinds of dance. My, I'm the youngest of five children, and my second sister had been the dancer of us, and she... Though she trained in ballet, she loved folk dance. She loved what was called natural movement, which is a British tradition of Isadora Duncan type thing. Um, she loved Spanish. She just went to everything, and I learned not to be snobbish that mm-hmm. way. So I remember when the Graham Company came to Covent Garden that year, 76, I went to see that. Um, but when I moved to London later in 76, you could sit in the cheap seats of Covent Garden for one pound, which was cheaper than any other place in London. So I just lived at Covent Garden uh, on the upper they their little padded benches sitting sideways to the stage, right up in the cheap seats. And I learned a lot, you know. And I, I, Lynn Seymour was then in her late prime. Month of the Country had just been made for her. Uh, and I saw her do that in two years, um, 20 times. Wow. Wow. Um, and doing all of that, I found, I used to write letters about the opera to my f- friends at university. And I think when I was writing letters on opera, I was probably trying to sound clever to keep up with all my musical friends, which was probably as boring as hell. <laughs> when I started to go to the ballet, I was trying to understand why this um, unusual art form, why it moved me so. And I had some friends at Cambridge who knew a bit about ballet, but on the whole, I was finding my way for them. And we were all just, talking to each other about what this mystery was. And in a way that brought me much nearer to good criticism than what I had done on opera, because you're really going into fundamental things, even though you don't know what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I did read the critics and tried to learn from them. And from the beginning, even when I was still at university, my last term, my friend Bridget, who is still a good friend of mine. She lives up in the Lake District of England. but she said, I loved your letter about the ballet and I read it aloud to my mother and we both think you should be a dance critic. Ah. And I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. It's like being told you should be a male model. <laughs> in, in, in a way, it's a terrific compliment, but you think nobody serious does that. Mm-hmm. For a living. Um, <laughs> and so I just dismissed it and I went on dismissing it. As I wrote letters obsessively um, in London, I would, I would write letters... In bed in the morning, I write them on the bus to work. I would write them in my coffee breaks. And they were just letters, 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 mainly about dance and trying to analyze what I had seen. And more and more of my friends kept saying, you're doing it for us, so do it for a living. Right. <laughs> and I just wouldn't listen. I just thought, come on, some real job's going to come along. I've got a brain in my head. Um, <laughs> and then I met a friend who was my contemporary she'd also been at university with me but I hadn't met her until we were both in London and uh, she could see I was interested and just took me into a bit of what she did and took me to some performances and then she was actually American that she spoke with a a British accent that makes mine sound common she had so many plums in her mouth the first time I met her and she used to say uh said, at last I can use that expression. I've heard so much about you. I <laughs> I mean, she was American and she suddenly rang me up once and said, I'm being allowed back into England but only for five days because of my visa. Um, my dear, you're a dance critic and you've got five days to write your first review. And that wow. was 9, May 1978. And it was only when I filed that first review that I suddenly thought, oh, now I see why people were telling me to do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just felt so natural and so good to try to explain to a general readership uh, why I was moved by dancing. Mm-hmm. That's a very long, that's a long answer to your question.
0: <laughs>
1: the a great answer. But what was the subject of the first review?
2: Um, it was. I was given a monthly <laughs> column, so I was writing for a a monthly newspaper on fashion and gossip. The m- newspaper's called Ritz. And all you, the one thing they insisted on was that you dropped names and you put all names uh, into capital letters and you tried to mention fancy people who were in the audience that night. So you would uh-huh. say, I went to see Manon and Covent Garden and David Hockney capital letters was <laughs> in the uh-huh. And I thought that's so boring, but I could see that was the style of that newspaper. So uh, while I was name dropping, I would uh, also just try to, be entertaining and funny, but also explain why whatever dance I was seeing really got under my skin, which was a very good lesson in journalism. You know, you're trying to be fun and gossipy, but also be serious.
0: Yeah. So you've shifted where you um, write these sorts of reviews and your musings on dance. Of course, you were at the New York Times for quite some time. And now that you've left that post, you write a lot on your website, which is so great to see. And we love to... Thanks to you,
2: Rebecca. You helped Uh, me set it
0: up. (laughs) It was my pleasure to give you that great platform to continue your writing. And one thing we did want to ask you about, because we definitely wanted to touch on the death of Jacques D'Ambois, and we Mm. thought, what better person to to talk about him with than you. So just briefly before we kind of continue with our chat, can you tell us what you feel like his biggest impact was on the dance form or the art form?
2: Oh, Jacques was so multi-level. He was uh, a figure of wonderful enthusiasm and spirit. Um, I only knew him probably from his late 70s or early 80s until the end of his life. Uh, And he just wanted to know you. I mean, so... And I didn't, on the whole, like meeting people, as I think I've told you before, in the dance world, because I thought it might bias me. I didn't know about the National Dance Institute, but I thought I might be compromised if I met the head of the National Dance Institute. So I went to see a performance by them and snuck in the side and kept as furtive as I could. And I was in the... Upper level, and so I could hear behind me Jacques Demy's unique voice, I and mean, he had a really carrying voice. I can't mm-hmm. imitate it, but he could hear him, by him, and he was looking for me. And he suddenly said, "Where is Mr. England? I've got to speak to Mr. England. I've got to tell him about <laughs> Freddie Ashton." <laughs> <laughs> and with these, you know, he had terrible knees because he was now what in his, as I say, late seventies. I suppose this is right. two thousand and seven. He came clattering down the steep staircase because he needed to find me, right. and I turned around and you know said hello. I see you're looking for, and he says, "We've got to have lunch. I've got to tell you about Freddie Ashton. Whenever I went back to England, I used to take Freddie Ashton at uh, lunch back and take him with my wife because he made my first leading role in me, and he did. Freddie Ashton singled him out when he was only seventeen years old before Balanchine had made any role mm-hmm. uh, wow. and he was partnering diana adams can you imagine uh, and he was always grateful that's so Jacques, he was grateful to the world and he didn't feel like neglecting them mm-hmm. yeah. and like, to answer your other side of the question of what was his chief importance of course he was a certain kind of virile integrity mm-hmm. that radiated out of audiences for more than 30 years i mean i was, saw him on stage in 1979 when I was first looking at New York City Ballet. So I saw him in Who Cares? I saw him in Meditation. The next year or so I saw him in David's Wunderstand to a few ballets, Mm -hmm. Union Jack. Um, But of course, mainly we know the films. and I've been so excited in recent years to look at the films of Apollo, which was I think the role he was most proud of having danced. It's so interesting when you met him, he would say, when Balanchine, had all these valleys on me, and he just showed me the movement and told me what to do. Mm-hmm. But with Apollo, he took you into meanings. He took you into narrative. He took you into imagery. Mm-hmm. And he said it was so surprising because I already, in 1957, the year of my first Apollo, had created some roles for Balanchine. I was to create many more. But suddenly there was this other side of Balanchine that took me by surprise, and I could feel the honor, and I was lucky that I went on doing it for him. Jacques used to say 20 years, I think it was less than that, but anyway, we don't need to argue now. Uh, he had a lot of chance to argue, <clears throat> sorry, to discuss Apollo with Balanchine, who just kept on giving him more and more information.
0: Right.
2: Um, some of it was about the prologues, so there's the, um, I mean, you can watch on YouTube when I interview Jack, Mm -hmm. the Balanchine Foundation, but I also got him in, let me think, 2018. Um, You know, I I first spoke to you about Serenade in this series. Um, Well, we did the same thing, a three-day seminar on Apollo at the New York Public Library in 2018, and we got Jack, and we got Edward Villella, and we got Eve Anderson, and Jacques brought along, in his wonderful way, Adrian Dantzig-Waring. So we had four Apollos in the room. I think also Jeffrey Edwards, who may not have danced it, but had learned it from Valella. We had Kay Mezo, a former Tapsicory. We had Kieran Nichols, uh, a great polyhymnia. And um, we had several calliopes. Um, my friend Joy Brown, who's in her 90s, who had danced with Balanchine in 1945. Uh, Suki Shora, who would learn things from Balanchine about Calabi that he hadn't told to anybody else. And we got all of this filmed. Oh,
1: and so Jacques great.
2: set the tone from the beginning. We had a whole day of just watching old films. Mm-hmm. Jacques was excited out of his mind looking mm-hmm. at those. Now, he was in two of them. And he talked fabulously across the music in the first them, telling us what Balanchine told him. So it's all on record. At every moment, he said, that's where Balanchine told me this. That's where Balanchine told me that. Um, So
0: important to
2: keep those. It's thrilling Uh, to have that. And then the next year, 2019, I was able to do, with Robert Groskowicz, a presentation at the library on Apollo. And Jacques was in the audience as a Suki. And Jacques, again, was just so excited. He was proud. Not going on about himself, he just needs to say, what a ballet, what a choreographer. I'm so happy that I was part of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, love that. Lovely, enthusiastic man. Wonderful.
1: I wanted to bring up this one moment. I wonder if, Alistair, if you were there. Um, I don't remember who moderated it, but it was a discussion with Jacques, Edward, Arthur, and Allegra. I'm fairly certain it was in the centenary. Um, and there was a moment where Jacques said to Allegra, and it, it felt like it was, you know, the first time she'd ever heard this. But he said on Balanchine's deathbed, he went up and he said, of all the ballerinas you worked with, like, who was the greatest? Who who do you think was the most talented? And he said, Allegra. And just like being there in the room, like while she received that information, especially, oh. you know, as she has such a, she had a complicated re- relationship with Balanchine towards the end. It was like such a, you know, chills, you know, just such a beautiful moment to be there for.
2: I love that. I've heard it slightly differently. I wasn't in New York when that happened. Um, And when Jack told that story, I've heard that Jack may have said it to Balanchine when Farrell was out of the company in the Brussels years, Uh which would explain why Balanchine went for Allegra. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't say. I mean, Allegra was, whom I never saw dance Balanchine, by the way, alive. I saw her do a um, Don Taras ballet and she was extraordinary in just a very Mm -hmm. short number. You would thought, oh, perfume boy she just fills the stage with it Mm -hmm. um but I didn't see her do a I I slightly know her and I've asked her questions she came to our serenade seminar she's a wonderful woman um people who saw her was the even who saw Farrell who was a very great tepsichore they tend to think of Allegra as the definitive tepsichore for some of them she was the real queen of symphony and C second movement Mm -hmm. And they kept changing their mind about whether that was great with Farrell or not, but with Allegra, always, always, Mm -hmm. always. For for them, the definitive Sugar Plum Farrell, even when she had no technique, apparently, and there were weak days, Mm -hmm. the magic she created. Um, And then there are ballads at Scotch Symphony where nobody ever forgets Allegra. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this is all hearsay. I wasn't there. Breaks my
0: heart.
2: (laughs) Another thing I was curious about with Allegra, this isn't relevant to your question, but it's interesting okay, to me, just chatting. is the new structure that Bam, that Robbins created for a ballet when he made Dances at a Gathering. It has a structure like mm-hmm. No Previous Ballet. Right. And he has three major ballerinas: Violette Verdi, Allegra Kent, both at the top of their form, and the young Patricia McBride. I mean, not so very young. She'd already created important roles for everybody. Um, but those two senior women, Allegra and Violette, could not see... What was in it for them in that ballet, and they both tried to withdraw from dances at a gathering before the premiere. You know, a friend of mine, Joan Bakeland in New York, was working backstage in the New York State Theatre. She worked for City Opera, and she saw Violet on the phone in a temper, saying, "I want to withdraw from this ballet. I'm not." <laughs> Joan said to her, "You don't realize how great that solo is. You're the only person who's got a solo. I know you come on halfway through the ballet, but it doesn't <laughs> change everything. Once the." premiere happened they all realized what a value it was but not until then I think it's kind of funny that Allegra had those
1: feelings because now the shape that her role has taken like two major things generally go to other ballerinas you know it's it's become more common that Mav does the wind waltz which Allegra did originally and then Allegra's solo later I don't know what we call that solo but now often the, the green lady gets the second solo so that mm-hmm. she's not just stuck with the Lady of the Manor solo. Um, <laughs> so Allegra actually—I ha- mean, I actually was thinking like that must be hard because it's already the the yellow girl, the apricot. She has it's very puffy even without the waltz and without that extra solo. I think she must. I was like, she had some stamina if she was <laughs> if she
2: was doing all of that and still complaining that she wasn't the lead. <laughs> <laughs> I think also Robbins. I heard Peter Martins once say this at the State Theater. He interviewed Kira Nichols, and he said. Do you know, Kira? Of our generation, you were the only one who Robbins always loved and was kind to. The rest of us all had tough times now and then, or often with Jerry. Uh, but I think Patty was like that for the previous generation. She mm-hmm. never could do a thing wrong. Patty, uh, Robbins just loved that that pure, enthusiastic spirit of hers. Mm-hmm. And Allegra and Violette probably felt a little mm, uncomfortable. <laughs> But Robin's played funny games about that. Monica Mason talks about it when he staged it for the Royal Ballet. And he really loved the Royal Ballet, so he changed the structure of the ballet, the order of some of the dancers, to, to reinvent it for them. And Monica said, you know, for one thing, with auditions, I've never forgotten the day when he told both Merle Park and Svetlana beriosova I mean, world-class ballerines, you need not return, you're not going to be on the cast. <laughs> and then... And then of the 10 dancers who remained, he said he made me and Lynn Seymour wait until the day before the premiere to find out which of us was going to get the solo for The Woman in Green. Mm -hmm. And I said, Monica, I can't remember from that cast. It's so long ago. I remember you were both wonderful. I don't remember which did the solo. And she said quietly, oh, I did. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, Lynn did not mind. She got the walk with the boys number, which was a great part of her Graham Robbins raved about her back in New York about how she did it and Lynn in particular just said I really was I loved Jerry and he made all of us feel that we were contributing to a creative process she said whereas I know he has a bad reputation but never to us and not like Tudor she said the bastard was Tudor and she said when I done the number of roles with ABT uh she said, I, he didn't destroy me, but he did. I did Juliet for him, among other Tudor ballets with ABG, and he destroyed two of my Romeos in front of my eyes, and mm-hmm. it was terrible to see. Gay this so, says the same thing. That is, it that um, is that something Sorry? that you about hear a
0: lot? Is that something that you hear a lot about Tudor and maybe versus, you know, Jerome Robbins?
2: Um well, Tudor's greatest works are so great that you want to see them forever, so it's a pity that he created the scars in you know? them. Everybody loved that rem- that Remy who saw it, but uh, he he kind of self-destroyed his own ballets, I think. And you can't get that Romeo back because ABT has sold some of the sets. There are two films of it, but none of them include the final scene, so ABT has mm-hmm. tried to see if it could reconstruct, and you just can't get the choreography back for the final scene. well.
0: Your wealth of knowledge is just amazing to me. <laughs> you just have all of <laughs> It just these... means
2: I'm very old.
0: No, it's like you no, remember I... everything.
1: <laughs> but do you think that you could have like someone else that was like, would there be a choreographer who is well-versed enough in Tudor to create something in the language of Tudor? You know what I mean? To, to finish mm-hmm. it. It just seems such a shame. Right. Like the way that Allegro, Tchaikovsky's third piano concerto, allegedly was finished by a student of his, right? Like, he died Maybe. before. I, that's what I've heard. I don't know. Word on the street. Rumor. <laughs> Tchaikovsky rumor mill. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, that's what I, nice I feel idea. like it's just sad.
2: I just, I don't, for one thing, know quite who would be adept enough in Tudor Star, which was always very idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. But you could do more sleuth work. I mean, for example, Lynn Seymour... She's not a great, you know, she doesn't do many interviews now, but you could try to get a Tudor scholar to her just to say, what do you remember of the final scene? You could go to MacArthur, who was another Tudor Juliet, and just say, what are your memories? Um, And work from that, you know, do a Millicent Hodson reconstruction of it. So, yes. Um, But all I can say is it would be hard work, and the Tudor estate would be very difficult about it. Mm. Right. Wow
1: all right well we could talk about all these little um pockets of history all day long but we want to get into the present <laughs> um so uh, city center has just announced this year's slate of um, studio five live um, coaches and dancers it's a super impressive and very diverse um, array of great artists that have been curated and um, will be presented by you so we want to talk about it but i want to go back can we talk a little bit about 2020 first because that was such a big success um so let's talk about what your process is I guess for that year and for this year as well in in whittling it down because we know we all like to be greedy about um you know you have this level of access and you have so much you want to learn so how, how do you get it down to just however many sessions it is per year
2: um <laughs> well it was five last year with the ballerinas three ballerinas five um programs and this year we were going to do six and i let's just say for technological reasons uh we had to cut the six that short notice so there will be five um i'm in a way useful because i have a lot of ideas and I just uh, and I was going to work on a series of Studio 5 live programs before the mm-hmm. pandemic with them so I was already giving them 10 or 20 ideas we could do this we could do that one of my ideas is you sh- we should do whether or not I do it but City mm-hmm. Center should do an evening with Misty Copeland because it was her 20th anniversary of ABT mm-hmm. the year before I had chaired a, a 20th anniversary evening with herman Cornejo uh, which had been great, and it would be only, it's more than what I mean it's only what misty deserves, you know mm-hmm. just about the world's most famous dancer now. Right. amazing mm-hmm. um so they love the idea of misty I don't quite know how, but at the beginning of the pandemic, they were in touch with both Tyler and Sarah Mans, Tyler Peck and Sarah Mans, so basically they said we've got these three ballerinas, so those were our nucleus uh I think I went to those three with a list of ideas to each one. And I think I chose the right thing for just about all of them. And they liked all the ideas. But Misty was working with an injury, so she had to, uh, you know, put most of them on the back burner. But she loved the idea of working on Juliet. Mm-hmm. I think we also could have done one on mine scenes. So that was the other option with mm-hmm. her. And I knew we couldn't do extensive physical work because of the injury. Tyler and Sarah, of course, were just raring to go. And this was early in the pandemic when we began. So they were ideal. And they... I think I just say, for example, to Tyler, it would be wonderful to have a balancing session with you and uh, and we could get you with various coaches if they're available. And I I can't remember whether Meryl Ashley was my idea or not, um, but Tyler came back and said, I love working with Meryl I've known her since I, she was working with the company, so we got on very well. But, you know, somebody I've never worked with and whom I would love to work with was Suzanne. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I thought, oh, how interesting. And it's that clever of Tyler to see that that would take her in a new direction with a perfect thing. And then she also added, if I could work on Zigan, that would be a real thrill. And I thought, Mm -hmm. isn't that clever? That's the right Farrell thing for you to try. And it would work brilliantly in a studio circumstance. Mm -hmm. I knew as soon as we thought of it, we weren't going to get anywhere with Suzanne Farrell, because Suzanne doesn't know Tyler and she would never want to work with somebody online in the public situation she's also I think shy of technology Mm -hmm. uh in her mid-70s so I don't think she would want to work with a new medium uh I don't know Meryl at all well but Meryl is just a super professional so I just knew she would be fabulous she was our first episode we were all nervous I can tell you and the technology seemed so petrifying when we first handled it Mm um Uh, And she was ideal for that. She was just ready, wonderful, Uh, and Tyler was just the same. I have to tell you, I don't think we've revealed this before, (laughs) that that we we all were half an hour talking to each other online before we went on, and Tyler was chatting, coming back and forth from the screen, making sure that she was in shape, Meryl sitting at her desk, and then I think 10 minutes before we went on there, Tyler's Tyler's screen went blank, and there was a power cut in her part of (laughs) California. And we were going mm-hmm. live around the world. Oh <laughs> no.
0: my gosh. Um, no. And
2: she, and she came back within five minutes and she said, We have had lots of power cuts in this camp. <gasps> wow. So we did all of that series live, knowing that this kind of thing could happen again. Just right. terrifying. Panic. I think because of other technical reasons, we actually relayed the Misty Alessandra Ferry uh, one, which had Alessandra in Milan. Beautiful. Um, Roman La Scala, if you saw it, amazing, mm. in the Theatre Museum, Beautiful. Um, uh, that I think actually went out an hour late, and nobody quite knew that it was going out an hour late. But mm. right. I forget why, um, but because we were doing it an hour late, Alessandra was speaking such gold that we elongated <laughs> the programme, so it should have been 60 minutes, but we let her go on to about an hour and a quarter. so
0: how are you changing the technology this year because are you recording them ahead of time or are you doing them live
2: we've recorded them all we recorded them between february and the end of april um and better (laughs) and we've been geographically crazily ambitious except Mm -hmm. it all worked we did just about all the programs we recorded in one take the two most geographically ambitious um are on non-ballet, or three of them are non-ballet genres, but one of them is to do with um, Odissi, which is my favorite, most beautiful form of Indian classical dancing, and the great Bijayini Satpati, who was one of the two main dancers of the great company Nritiagram, which is often to the United States, beautiful woman, and also a guru, a very fine teacher. Um, she's just gone freelance in the last two years anyway, so it was a perfect point in her career to ask her. She chose a dancer whom I already met. I met Bijayini when I went to India in 2012. I met him, Suraj Subramanian, on my second visit to India, Uh, and she chose him, she said, "He's really one of the greatest dancers I've ever worked with. He was now in Brussels, Mm -hmm. uh, and he knows more than one kind of Indian classical dance. But if you can imagine a technical state when you're combining Bijani in Bangalore uh, in southern India with Suraj in Brussels, and he'd gone especially to Brussels because he had a problem with his studio uh, Wi-Fi in Ghent, where he lived, Uh me in London, and the team in New York. That's quite something. But it was as nothing to our tango session. <laughs> because in our tango session we had, I think, the team in New York at 9am taping the great Gabriel that my greatest tango dancer, with his partner um, Maru Bifarkat in Buenos Aires, where it was 10am, me in London at 2pm, and wait for it, the two dancers they had chosen, Karen and Kay, same-sex couple, in South Korea at 10pm.
1: <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs>
2: Wow, and it worked like pretty well. It was just great. But uh,
0: if it weren't for doing it on this live stream, like the whole programming would be different, right? Like this might not be feasible to right. bring all these people together from all these places. The expense of that. So this medium of doing it digitally is really allowing all these people to come together, and then of course the reach to be that much broader for your audience.
2: Right. I mean, you know dances better than I do, so you can imagine, and the musicians. So there are uh, two mistakes you can look for in the series. And they're so small and so, <laughs> and so human. Um, when you watch the Odyssey one, it's so fascinating because you start, you're she's taking Suraj into the pure dance aspect of Odyssey. Uh, and the, Counts which she gives them are so complicated so she's giving him threes then fives then sevens then eights and just in very quick succession and he picks up remarkably well but then when he does it all in one take there's just two little bits when he blanks out for a tiny second <laughs> you would to any uh-huh. human being he was so mortified that we're showing this session where he blanks out and <laughs> oh, oh. and in our let me think in the um apollo Session. Uh, we have Calvin Royal the Third of ABT is mm-hmm. uh dancer doing Apollo, studying with Eve Anderson, who is uh the director of Ballet Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, but Calvin lives with his partner, the pianist whose name uh Yats- Yatsek mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it, I haven't remembered his name. Mm-hmm. Uh and Jacek played a wrong note at one point, and <laughs> afterwards he came to the screen, said, Can I play that note? <laughs>
0: oh no one would have noticed
2: (laughs)
1: so Um, for any of these did you pick the repertoire first or you always started with the dancers and coaches
2: i think it was all negotiations i think for example with this series the city center for example uh, they just said we'd love one on indian classical dance and they weren't very specific so I thought straight away, well, Bijani is freelance. She comes to, she's well-known in New York. She has performed with Mitugam at City Centre, so there's a connection. Oh, Let's go to her. I know her personally, and I can ask her who she would like to coach. So she chose Suraj Subramanian, which was wonderful to me because I know him as a friend from my trip to India anyway, uh, and mm-hmm. has an English career as well as being in uh, Southeast Asia and um, Brussels, Belgium. Mm-hmm. So that was great. Um with Tango, I knew I wanted to go to Gabrieli. Say anyway, I've raved about him. I think, I think we quote in the publicity his in quotes the Borisnichkov of Tango. Well, I know who wrote that line. I wrote it in the book. An amazing dancer, uh, and and he's more articulate than I've ever known him. In the program, there's one bit they stop rehearsing a little sooner than we had actually wanted them to uh, for technical. You know, so it was almost a mistake.
0: Sure. But
2: that gave me the chance that I actually had to ask him questions to fill in the time about tango. And, and he was saying things about tango I'd never heard him say before. So that's mm. a fascinating thing, just off the cuff. Wow. Um, with Apollo, I think it probably was straight away an idea of mine to get Calvin Royal the Third. Um, you know, he'd just started to dance with both ABT and the Vale Festival in 2019. Mm-hmm. But he'd never, and he'd studied with very good people like Vicky Simon uh, and Damien Wetzel, who both know Apollo really well. But he'd never studied with any Apollo who had loved that role from Balanchine.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Uh, so I thought, and he would have been interested in Jacques, actually, of course, Jacques, Jacques Donvoise. But I just knew you can't ask somebody over 80 to deal with online technology. Right, exactly. um, so I said, let's go to Eva Anderson, who I've already brought to an Apollo symposium, spoke brilliantly at our mm. library symposium. Let's do that. Um, so that one fell into place simply. One was a problem. City Centre suggested we had Matthew Ball, the wonderful, handsome, uh, vital principal dancer of the Royal Ballet. I only really started to watch him in 2019, and I think it's a fabulous dancer. So I found his email from a mutual friend, got in touch, and we had various ideas. One of them uh, was to work with Anthony Dowell, uh, who's in his 70s. And uh, I think there was a choice, but we thought that Matthew Ball would particularly like to work on the solos, perhaps particularly the first solo for Degrier in Macmillan's Menon. And apparently that first solo is a bugger. Um, uh, Matthew Ball said, we could do just an hour on the technical things of that solo. It's so demanding. And it's so Anthony. It's full of that. Anthony used to just step effortlessly onto Demi Point in a way that many dancers still find hard with the things that you do on Demi Point. Mm -hmm. Um, So we got that all set up. Uh, and Anthony Dar believe me does not respond to emails quickly in fact he doesn't do emails you have to go to friends of his and then they relay <laughs> <laughs> and then he says well I'm not sure about City Centre could you send me some of your programs and actually officially they were all off the air but I managed to get somebody at City Centre to send him the Merrill Ashley one and the Stephanie Salan one so he was finally persuaded and we also and then he went down with an illness and he just said I don't know that I will be well enough in time so we had to look around and to Monica Mason saying, would you like to coach Matthew Ball in part of Swan Lake? And she said, it would be quite wrong. I'd never worked with him before. He's a great dancer, but he's not used to me. He has other coaches in the Royal Ballet of Swan Lake. I should not step in at this point. So I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> I think I'd already approached Wayne McGregor, but Wayne was in working in Africa, uh, or at least on, on a break in Africa, and he also was getting over-ambitious. And he said, why don't we just go live in Covent Garden and you could come to Covent Garden and we could do that with the whole space and we'll make it there and it'd be great. Uh, and actually in the, that point of the lockdown, it wasn't going to happen. Right. Um, but when we said we were really doing this as an online thing with everybody in the individual space, uh, you can say, oh, well, I knew, uh, it won't work for me. But when Monica then said no, I then went back to him and said, good possibly try you again and i had gone to him about something else not to do with city center and so he knew i was actually an okay human being i wasn't just Mm -hmm. a bastard who sometimes written the wrong reviews which i have sometimes Uh, and and he was full of enthusiasm at once and just said yes let's go for it uh, and I'm working on this full-length ballet, The Dante Project. We've presented the first third of it when the Royal Valley went to Los Angeles in 2019, but as soon as the Opera House is reopened again, we'll be making parts two and three, and why don't I make the first solo on Matthew Ball and give you the opening hour or half hour of the creation of a solo?" So I said, are you really wow. sure about that, cool. because wow. that's pretty terrifying, pretty naked. And he said, no, I think we can do it. And Matthew was fine with it. And we absolutely did it live. We we talked to them both. And then Wayne is in a stunning studio of his own in the Olympic Village in London. Uh, Matthew is in what's called the Ashton Studio at Covent Garden. They both look like the most splendid studios of Mm -hmm. the whole series. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they just went, you know, like a dream. How
0: cool. And then there's one other one, right?
2: Yes, now what was the other one? Oh, of course, Alvin Ailey. Now, that is the one that we lost. Instead of most of them are 60 minutes, that one is 90 minutes. And we've got three different solos. So we got three dancers from the Ailey Company, each working on a different choreographer's work. And we begin with Robert Battle, the director of the Ailey Company, working on a solo from his own. I can never remember how to pronounce this. Takadimi. uh, That's the name of the dance. And it's a solo for Ronaldo Maurice. That's right. Lovely Big eyed dancer, he was great to interview. And it's fun watching them do it. Then we went, and they're all, I think Battle is in a office at the Ailey Center. Um, Ronaldo's in one studio at City Center. Then we had to go to another studio at City Center. Jacqueline, Jackie Green works with um. Jamar Roberts, who's back in the Ailey Center in a different studio. Uh, mm-hmm. And they work on Jamar's uh, dance, um, Members Don't Get Weary. Mm-hmm. And she obviously just adores working with Jama, And he's a wonderful speaker. So it's great chemistry between them. I mean, as it was in each case, but it's interesting to see the different chemistries. And then we went to Ailey choreography itself from Revelations, where the wonderful Yannick Lebrun Uh, works with the great Matthew Rushing on that great Mm -hmm. male solo, I Want to Be Ready. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've often wondered how can Ailey dancers keep Revelations fresh because they do it, you know, a million times. Mm -hmm. I began to understand when you see how Matthew takes Yannick into it. I think that will come across on the program, how you really get back into the thought behind it at each time. Very, very touching.
0: What is your goal as the moderator and also, you know, you're working on this program and creating this program? What is your goal for what you want audiences to take away from this incredible series?
2: Um, well, you just play it by air each time and you try to keep it light and spontaneous, but also intelligent. Mm-hmm. You're trying to get people deeper into the art. Um, you've got to keep the dancers and the choreographers happy. You can't ask, with each one, you can ask them a different set of questions and it will be different for each people. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of my goal is just to get the hell out of the way. You know, you set them up <laughs> and get them bright and talking. And then you say, this is great. I have a hundred other questions for you, but I'm going to shut up now. And then we hand over to them. And then I come back for the last, usually about 10 minutes, if it's a whole hour long program.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Um, mm-hmm sometimes shorter. I'm, I'm eventually not the one that matters. If, as long as the chemistry between them is good. I don't, you know, gotcha. I, I've set it up and I, I'm happy to be invisible. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: How do you think the program might move forward once we, you know, we're really looking right now at a point where we're hopefully going quote back to normal fairly soon. Would you like to keep elements of this digital so that we can have these you know, unions of different artists that otherwise might not be possible?
2: Well, wouldn't it be great? But that is up to city centre. It's not me. They organise it. Right. And I think their plan, and the moment all they are, frankly, is focused on is getting back into live performance, which they see right. on the horizon quite soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that they will ask me to be one of their presenters again for Studio 5 Live. Uh and I don't know more than that. I, you know that I'm sure we are aware of what we have achieved. We were almost immediately aware we are doing things in online on Studio Five that are not possible right. um, in the in the real studio ones. But at the stage, we don't know.
1: Right.
2: You'll you'll have to ask Arlene Schuller. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the wonderful Stanford Mikishi, the head of dance programming at City Centre. He's become a good friend of mine over years. He was a Trisha Brown dancer Stanford McEachie. He's so intelligent and just quiet and giving, but he really is the, the steel that keeps these, these series together. And we also have the most fabulous technical man, uh, Mark Mongold. I, all this technology scared us for hell except that Mark would be there with gentle voice, never panicking when things threatened to go wrong. And I was doing more technology with each episode. If if you want, we're not showing them in the order that they were screened and in the order that they were um, made by the way. Mm -hmm. So, Try to look out for my increasing ease with technology and the increasing skill and also look at the length of my hair. <laughs> 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 because up That's to okay. the last two episodes, my hair was just getting longer and longer and longer. And I was trying to slick it back out of sight uh, because no hairdresser, my hair was over.
0: <laughs> well, Alistair, how can our listeners and how can we watch these great um series and how long will they be available we, also?
2: we, we go live before. the first one on may the 18th um and the first one is the apollo with Eve anderson and calvin royal the third you go to the city center website uh and if you scroll down the just the main website i think the third entry at the moment says studio Five. click on that i think you click on the word saying rsvp and that will take mm-hmm. you into that but also and i'm sure that would be even more clearly announced on May the 18th, that you can also just go to the City Centre YouTube channel. So it'll be available on either. Each one is available, I think, for nine days this time, free. Uh, mm-hmm. If you are a subscriber to City Centre, I think you pay something like $100, which seems like a lot at first, but actually you're getting, you are you have permanent access to all of these uh, programmes. Right. So that's a lot. Nice. Isn't it? Yeah. Right, right, right. As well as other things apart from my series.
0: Yeah. And we'll be sure to put that information in the description of this episode so that people can easily find those links because we know that they're going to want to tune in and watch.
2: I, I can say right. I learned from each program a great deal. So if I'm learning right. a lot when I'm pretty old, I hope <laughs> that most viewers will really, really learn. And I, and I learned to love each genre more. It was so interesting doing well four different genres and two very different kinds of ballet. Balanchine's Apollo and uh, Wayne McGregor. That's mm-hmm. pretty different.
1: Wonderful. Right. I, I loved the last series so much. And um, I'm so glad that I got to tune in. And I mean, I watched the Stephanie Salon one, I think, three or four times because, you know, the other coaches too. This is what's so great about it. You see, we get a, a variety, and Stephanie Salon is not someone that we see a lot of. Meryl, you know, is always kind of out there and she's great. We love Meryl. But it was so interesting to see someone else's mind and just. To see what, what made Stephanie Salon tick as a dancer and then how she relays that to Tyler. You know, it was, it was wonderful.
2: I, th- I think Stephanie was my idea and I was very proud of that idea. Of, and it was good just for the reason you say that she isn't always thought of. I saw her so much when I was first watching City Ballet. Um, so that, I, I am pleased with that. And, but she and Tyler had already met. So they were just very happy to now to work together, which they never had. Right.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Alistair, so much for coming back on, and we look forward to speaking with you as you continue to do such awesome work and <laughs> Thanks, sharing baby. what you're up to. Thanks,
2: thank Alistair. you. Thank to you, you, and- you
1: both.